Salutations, everybody. It is Maddie here today with episode 109 of the Ham Radio Podcast. And it is me from Down Under, the Lone Bolt Wanderer. <laughs> it's me, Carrick, from ACG. <laughs> and we are joined by Mitchell Sabach. You are a patron, but you also have a really awesome position, don't you, my friend? Um, yes. Uh, so last year, I happened to have interned at Bethesda Softworks as a QA tester for Skyrim Special Edition. And uh, I have to say, it's been uh, one of the more incredible experiences that I've had in recent memory. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for supporting us. And we're going to be talking about that uh, later on in the podcast, your experience with Bethesda and just the the process of QA testing in general. But um, we have so much to cover this week, ladies and gentlemen. It's been something in these past two weeks. It's like E3 came early almost um, with -hmm. all these reveals and stuff. But let's just let's start off with all these games. I want to kind of just get a gauge. What's everyone playing right now? Because there's so much that's been coming out, and it's all been pretty good, in my opinion. You know, it's Prey, Surge, Injustice 2. Um, if anyone's playing anything that's overlapped from previous months, like, what are you guys on right now? Well, you want the- for, for, for me, obviously I finished Prey, but mm-hmm. I'm playing Outlast 2 now. And that came out, what was it, last month, I think. Yeah. And, and I couldn't play it because Prey was out, but... I tell you what, like, if you've played the first Outlast, you know how many like jump scares that, that are in that game. It's much of a scarier game. Mm-hmm. Outlast 2 is a bit more, I guess, messed up. It's a bit more gory. It, it's a bit more... It, it doesn't go for the cheap jump scare as often, even though they're still in there. It's, it's, it's more of an intriguing horror game as opposed to this kind of scary game. And even though it's kind of fucked up, like some of the letters you read in that game, really messed up stuff like really dark subject matter like someone wrote that fucking thing it's insane but (laughs) when you detach yourself from that it's more enjoyable i i think from the first game so wow i'll go last Hmm. all right mitchell what are you playing man uh recently i've had the chance to uh play both prey and uh little nightmares and i recently finished the latter so with regards to the, to uh, Little Nightmares, it's a bit like Limbo, is that it's a puzzle platformer that's set in a dark, gloomy environment that's uh, full of uh, terrifying creatures that you have to evade, as well as solving environmental puzzles in order to make your way through. Well, in the, in order to make your way through the environment that it, that also happens to have a lot of storytelling baked into it. Hmm. So if you played Limbo inside uh, Play Dead's uh, works, then you probably know what you expect from Little Nightmares. The difference is that unlike inside and uh, Limbo, uh, Little Nightmares is actually 3D. So basically, it's still on a 2D plane, but the difference is that you can move uh, um, not just... uh, It's not just left and right. You can also move around the environment like you're exploring it in an adventure title. Um, it does have a few benefits and disadvantages. The benefit is that it does broaden exploration and it does lead to some, you know, deeper and more elaborate puzzles, uh, especially when you have to push aside objects uh, during the chase scenes, which um, I have to say, I really like, you know, what Limbo and Inside had to offer in terms of te- tension and also hair indu- and, and you know hair raising situations where you have to really flee your foes, games. but little nightmares 
good God. Um, <laughs> not that not that they, you know, uh, scared the crap out of me, but they were just so unsettling. Uh, the, the enemy designs are quite simply some of the most grotesque and repulsive uh, individuals that I've ever seen uh, in recent memory. Wow. And, um, and I have to say, the, the final few bits of Little Nightmares really, really did it for me. Not just in terms of uh, action, but just in terms of, you know, uh, showing its uh, themes. So, obviously, with such uh, games that bear, that bear ambiguous uh, narratives, uh, there is mm. a message of sorts baked into the characters' actions and their surroundings. And without spoiling anything, there are a few moments in that game where you're questioning your character's morality. And my only concern... My only... (laughs) um, A bit. My my only reservation is that you can't really... there's, There's no opportunity for making choices. You just watch the character do their own thing Mm. so whenever you you encounter a situation where you feel like you're about to do something horrid you really don't have much of a say on what your character can do you all you have to do is really do the thing and uh, just watch as your character you know suffers the consequences i mean it's potent but when you're replaying the game multiple times Mm. it really doesn't lend itself well to a subsequent playthroughs because you already know what's going to happen uh, and you can't really go in a different route you you just have to watch um those moments are um are potent but they but second or third time through they start losing their impact this is what happened when you when you start talking to to fans of rpgs like fallout elder scrolls etc that are so used to choice in games that when you don't get choice in games it feels fucking weird like, wait, wait a minute, why can't I choose whether to save or to kill this person, you know? Mm-hmm. Why can't I choose it at this particular story point, and why doesn't that affect the main story in the end? Uh, th- there's a bit of it, I remember the other week, Carrick was talking about motor, motor setting your, um, like, before you play uh, another game after finishing one. Because yeah, yeah, it's motor so setting different. your expectations for how the yeah, narrative exactly. is delivered. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because I think that there's obviously a good place for games that don't have choice. Right, so sometimes you don't want to have to choose. You just want to be able to experience a story that's more movie-like, if you will. But yeah. yes, I. Uh, sorry. Uh, so oh, I yes, was... I, I concur. Uh, especially with Fallout Four, I think the addition of a voice, I think, really limited the amount of role play you can do in that game. Mm. Because when you have a voice, you also have a personality. You already have a particular mindset that's baked into the character, and that already kind of defines their arc. It does lead to a more focused narrative, yes. But when it comes to the experience of, you know, playing as a different character, and because RPGs are built on replayability, the idea of having a purpose, a particular purpose that grows... And that you set on your character and the environment as you go about your business. And having your choices matter, not just to yourself, like stats, XP, and weapons, but also from a uh, environmental standpoint, like how is this going to affect the people around you as well as the environment? Like, this is what makes an RPG an RPG. It's not, you know, XP, quests, etc., etc. 
It's like saying that a stealth game is just about light and shadow. That's just the surface yeah. details. Um, stealth is about is all about finding out things that you're not supposed to know. And whereas RPG RPGs is about having a palpable purpose that you bake into your character and the environment through your actions. So when people say Fallout 4 was disappointing to most players, it was because that purpose wasn't as, you know, uh, bespoke to uh, bespoke in terms of them crafting mm. their uh, own arc as they would have liked. And compare that to the likes of to previous Fallout games, especially in New Vegas, as well as uh, other Bethesda titles such as, such as Morrowind, which recently celebrated its 15th anniversary. Those types of games really gave the player an opportunity to express themselves in that they're able to create a difference, like a difference that really makes their hard work pay off in spades. Definitely. So having that kind of element uh, dil- diluted, you know, in an RPG experience can, you know, can 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 cripple the experience unless you have the overall gameplay or other aspects, uh, other design aspects. You back it up. Yeah, I think that's uh, what Fallout Four. Uh, that's what man. That's what Fallout Four did in terms of you know improved shooter mechanics, the settlements, etc. In order to still be a worthwhile Fallout experience. Hmm. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Is like. <clears throat> Not every game is a, an RPG, obviously, but you have games that present like a choice consequence, and you know, like a prey, they, they try to present that, and it's like, well, I don't think I don't view prey as an RPG, really. Uh, kind of has I have... those elements to it. I have a lot of gripes with that game. I'm not gonna lie; I know I'm very much outnumbered on that, especially as I no, thought about I... the ending more and more. I was like, no, like I just. Don't... Uh... We we could talk about this all day, we could. and we won't give spoilers. But we should do a spoiler cast w- in a couple of weeks. Though. We need to do a spoiler cast. But let's just say that in the end, I'm disappointed by the. I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm not going to say, but I thought the choices would matter more. But anyways, Carrick, talk about your, your games. Yeah, Carrick, what, <laughs> what? what have you been playing, man? Oh, um, what uh, uh. Uh, come, first time I've ever lost my train of thought on a podcast. <laughs> what what were we asking? Who have you been oh, playing? Oh, <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, so, um, Injustice and Farpoint. Uh, Farpoint's the PSVR game. Uh, uh, yep. And then Injustice is uh, just fantastic. Like, fantastic. How is Farpoint? I rated it a wait for a deep, deep sale. Uh, I thought it was, uh, I think... Rated against other yeah. VR titles, not against normal shooters, right? Yeah. But other other VR titles, it's it's got some really cool elements like uh, uh, cutscenes and voice acting and um, and good voice acting. Some pretty okay mechanics, but as game as a game, it just it, the thing is is if you have friends who've never played VR, this might be a good title to to let them see. It reminds me of Batman: The Experience because a lot of folks like that. But as a game, like. It does. It does very little, and it does mm. some pretty ter. It, it it takes some pretty terrible conveniences, like resetting enemies in front of you, which I don't think I remember a game that's ever done that. But if an enemy leaps past you, that instead of you turning around, which you can, which is weird, but 
the, the enemy will run back in front of you and then turn around like a football lineman saying, I'm offside, sorry, my bad. And it's it's just really, really weird. And and that happens throughout the entire title. So, you know, when it comes to Farpoint, um, the aim controller is okay. But for me, when somebody says, my God, I felt like I was in a battle because I held my hands versus this, and somebody else says, I felt the same way holding my hands like this, I'm sort of of that group. Just because I move one hand forward doesn't make me magically suddenly think I'm there and start sweating bullets. But some people are like that. I've, I had one friend who came over, and he was trying a Vive game, and we had a, there's an adapter you can buy that basically feels like a gun. And he was far more in-depth in, in into that and sort of bought into it than, than if you just hold them separate. I get it, but it was, it, dude, I'm, I'm, it's archaic hardware. And AIM, require, they require you to buy another fucking piece of hardware. Like, they already said you need to buy the Move. And so it's like, some people bought the Move, bought the PSVR, and then they turn around and say, PS4 Pro is really the better version of VR anyway. <laughs> and now... They're like, buy the aim controller, too. And it's just, it's it's VR for console. It's just not working out so well. At least, Look, it's, I, sold, at least it's selling well. I think it was timely then that, again, another piece of news we can't talk about, but HTC released their own standalone VR that you don't need a PC, you don't need a console. And, you know, you know it's not such an expensive endeavor, really, when it's yeah. an all-in-one package, especially when you consider that you need to buy this other gun or this other controller. Or you bought the original Oculus, but you really need the motion sensors, like the the motion controls, for it to yeah. work even better. So, yeah. I think I hope that this, uh, you know, I hope that the fact that having to buy several peripherals in order to play VR games is not going to spell the end of a virtual reality. Because I remember around the turn of the decade, the 2010s, when 3D was still big, and you saw Microsoft <laughs> and Sony. They were advertising the move and connect to, to their fullest. And at the time, I, I'll admit, I bought into the hype of both the move because at the time I, I mainly gamed on Sony consoles. And I also invested in a 3D TV. Uh. And I, and I, um, but actually, it wasn't a bad investment because along with the 3D, I also got. Uh, I also got a much smoother frame rate, hmm. a much better refresh rate. So that okay. meant that I could play games like um, I remember playing Kingdom Kingdom of Amalur Reckoning on my PS3. Normally, that game runs at 30 frames per second, but because of my TV, it felt like 60. So, hmm. so essentially, I bought it for the 3D and I kept it for the frame rate. But yes. 3D, unfortunately, the bar of entry was too high, and again, I hope that doesn't happen to VR in 4K, because the technology is intriguing. In fact, if you remember around the mid-2000s, when you saw games like Half-Life 2, Far Cry, Doom 3, and Fear, they saw, they meant, they signaled the transition to HD gaming, but also introduced them um, Advanced lighting effects, bigger maps, advanced physics, and better AI. And this signaled the start of a new generation and also the potential to leverage new technology in order to create, you know, experiences that felt more visceral. Um, I especially remember when ragdoll physics became much more common around that time period. And, now, and 
we're still seeing this technological leveraging with games like Shadow of Mordor and War with the Nemesis system, which uh, is, I think, is a great approach to um, dynamic and also a granular storytelling, a bit like the narrative Legos that Ken Levine talked about back in 2014. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that, that's intriguing technology. My only, my only concern is I wish there was more of this you know, leveraging, because if we are to advance the gaming medium, we have to make sure that we don't create experiences that are just better iterations of what already has come before it, but essentially trying to capitalize on the new devices and hardware that we have in order to manufacture the kind of games that wouldn't have been unimaginable a few years back. Mm. Mm. True, true, true. So, for me, I've been playing, uh, I've been hopping between a lot of games lately, actually, because I review, I'm looking at my list, I reviewed Prey, Mm. um, just, I'm sorry, Prey, like I said, I just didn't really like that game all that much, uh, not a bad game, but it it just didn't click with me well, um, after that, I went back, started chipping away at Nier Automata again, I'm on the middle of my third playthrough, um, or, well, it's actually a third playthrough. Is actually it's a how do I word it? Each playthrough has a new ending, and you like will play as someone different or something like that. And apparently, there's like five endings to understand the whole main story, and it's true because the th- the third playthrough is fucking magnificent. It's so good, and you're playing as a completely different character now. I love that game so much, but uh, before that, I was playing um, or not before, but now I'm back on Injustice Two. Um, I like Injustice 2 as a fighter, but I'm not that compelled by the loot constantly. Um, it's like Destiny and Injustice in a way where you just kind of hop in, you'll do like the multiverse, you'll complete some challenges and you'll get a bunch of loot boxes and you'll unbox them and you'll get some cool little gear and keep buffing your guy up and stuff. Um, it's definitely a lot better, I think, than, uh, Mortal Kombat 10, for example, uh, I haven't touched the story yet. I'm saving it for a rainy day because that's something you just can fucking bang out in an, in an evening or something like that because it's six to eight hours long. It's, it's Holy like... shit. Dude, you went about it completely wrong, FYI. What? Uh, if you, you So you haven't played the story? You just jumped into, like, multiverse and, and uh, versus? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause, like, what oh, happens, dude. What happens is I my friends and I, we because we, when we bought Gods Among Us, it's strictly just to, to duke it out all the time on King sure. of the Hill. And we just keep sure. cycling and doing that for hours at night. So to me, like everything else, is second nature. If you know what I'm saying, like not that it's bad or not that I uh, I look at it lesser, right? But it's just that I value different things in the fighter compared to a lot no, of I, other people. No, I, I I get that. It's just that the story here matters for the multi. Uh, really? It's, I don't want to. Yeah, it, it, like you went about it completely. <laughs> went back. So probably. It, well, no, I no, it's my multiverse, and then I'm going story. Yeah, it's sort of like jumping in the middle. And and I'm not saying this will magically make your day better, but mm-hmm. um, what happens is, without spo- there's a reason why you would go through the story first okay. because not not only gear, but some thing, some characters and why they're there. Like it's pretty insane, and this is coming from somebody who wasn't who was not a fan of some of their past titles. Okay. Um, okay. But uh, unfortunately, you did nothing wrong. They did. I I, I really do believe that they should have made either a concentrated effort. Yeah, yeah, or concentrated effort to not make it matter so much. But I just had a friend who did what you did, and he played the single player, 
And when he texted me, he's like, he was just like, OMG, I get it now. And I was like, mm. yeah, exactly. Okay. Because okay. It, it, tie, it ties in the reason for the loot in a way. Uh, right. it's, hard, it's hard to describe. But get, give yourself four or five hours and jump in the uh, single player no, when you get sure. a chance. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I like the game. It, it's just not... It's a it's a Nether Realm fighter. I mean, I, when I thought about it when right. I bought the game, I was like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, I don't remember the last Nether Realm game I didn't buy. The, you know, it's got a, it's been so long. I, I and um, they're not know, smooth. So, <laughs> and <laughs> I, I just, um, I mean, I, I still think they haven't made a game as good as Mortal Kombat Nine. Um, Mortal Kombat. It was remember. like the reboot. Mm. That one was just superb from top to bottom, and. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to to match that. But Injustice 2, is it's a good game. But that's what I've been playing because right now I'm just bouncing between that and Nier. And it's one of these days this year I'll get around to fucking beating Zelda. I don't know when. It, it's such a commitment and it's such I a... I still haven't finished it either, yeah, don't worry. it's such a good yeah. game and it's like I, I want to beat it, but I know I got so much time uh, or so much effort to put in to beat that that I'm kind of enjoying the more truncated ventures in game yeah. right now i can but yeah. uh, that that's what, basically what i've been up to overall what i like about the the new zelda is that so zelda is still an action adventure title at heart but it bears a lot of immersive sim qualities um surprisingly enough so a good example is the way uh objects interact with one another so um a good example is when you're aiming your arrow at a at what looks what looks like an explosive barrel near a bunch of goblins, but when you try to but when you hit the, when you hit the barrel, it just does a tuck. What what you have to realize in that particular case is that you're you're dealing with gunpowder, and in order to mm. make it explode, you need to essentially use you essentially have to light your arrow with fire, and w- when you shoot. The arrow and it hits the barrel then it explodes that's a good example and then and then i keep watching those uh you know clips of people surfing down mountains on their um and then suddenly jumping and then going to slow motion in order to take down the baddies beneath them hmm. and also using the synergy of paragliding and also um just all those elements and also cutting down trees in order to create bridges to cross, uh, you know, uh, gaps. I think this is a great way of, you know, le- of making use of the environment in order to achieve your objectives. A bit like, um, so earlier this year, I had the chance to um, uh, cover Thief at GDC. So I essentially did a poster that talked about its uh, environmental narrative. And I said that the mechanics of using the environment to your advantage to navigate the poor and rich quarters of the city, baked into the player the themes of power being something that has to be feared. Because in the rich quarters are much harder to go through than the poor ones, because the surface material is harder, so they create more noise. And you can't turn off the light, because these oh, are lamps, excellent. not torches. Yeah. And so you can't use your water arrow, and the corridors are much narrower, so... You have to improvise when guards are coming your way. And at the time, it was revolutionary because it was the first game to use light and shadow, light and sound as gameplay mechanics. So you could potentially be standing in front of the guard, but as mm. long as you're not making any noise or in the shadows, you're A-OK. I could go on and on about Thief. 
But um, <laughs> we got too much news to talk I know, about. <laughs> I know, but Zelda, but Zelda does a does a good job of inviting a lot of those immersive sim qualities, even though it's not quite an immersive sim. Uh, yeah. The you don't have much an impact on the narrative, the gameplay style. It's not quite as broad as the likes of System Shock 2 or Dishonored, but what's there is, I think it's... Nintendo's on an interesting path and I would like to see it you know, go further down that particular route in subsequent installments even if they also express interest in going back to the classic formula of you know, linear linear paths and dungeons should it happen. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I like what they're doing with Zelda too. I mean, obviously the only complaint I have, which is also kind of like a, I don't have as big of an issue, but it seems like everyone else does. It's the uh, the breakable weapons constantly. Oh yeah, always and forever, just blowing up on you. Ooh, what do we get into next on this list? Um, <laughs> Life is strange to anybody. I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take, take that. never. I've never enjoyed being a 17-year-old girl as much as Life is Strange. I'm so stoked, man. Like, I, I remember the shocked look on Maddie's face when I told him one of my favorite games of all times was Sims. And this is probably the second yeah. time that I shock people whenever, like, they see me and I'm talking about Call of Duty. And then suddenly I'm like, Life is Strange is awesome. But I'm stoked, man. Like, I... I I cannot wait to see how they sort of... It, well, first of all, I want to see if they use Max and, and Chloe and uh, how they go about the, the second season, like if they use a canon ending or something. Mm-hmm. But it, it just... I cannot wait, man. And and from what I understand about no, Don't Nod and just the way they, they work on things, there's a good chance that some of the problems that we saw uh, in the first one ha- have been fixed on a purely technical level as well. And I'm... Man, I cannot wait. Like... Yeah. I'm so into it. Yeah, some people, when, when they were responding to, like, the announcement, some people were like, oh, I'm excited, I love the game. But, like, everyone was saying, I saw, that um, one of their biggest complaints with the game was the writing. And I've always wondered with Life is Strange, you know, they were like, oh, so corny, it was adults trying to be kids. Like, I thought part of, I don't even want to say the game's charm, I thought that was their goal, was, like, when Chloe was saying hella, and they kind of sounded a little cheesy, I thought that was the intention, you know, to, to capture that era. Like, I thought that's what they were going for. I was a little confused by some of those complaints. Do you think they're going to try to amend those in the uh, in the sequel? Or do you think they're going to be like, yeah, let's use Hella again and all that type of stuff? I started saying Hella since I played that game. I still say it all the time. <laughs> it, it's compli- I thought it was a good thing when they said Hella. I'm like, fuck yeah. That's I awesome. will say this. I will say this, and then everybody else can pipe in. Um, Hella... Uh, Coming from Oregon, where I live, hell is actually still said by the kids. Mm. So because, like I said, one of my side jobs, I'm around them a lot. And that's actually said all the time. So it was weird when I saw, I I feel like Maddie did. When people were talking about the writing, I remember going like, wait, what? Because (laughs) that sounds exactly like it, it, it. I could literally talk to somebody and then come and turn on the game and go, it sounds like they talked to these kids. And what's funny is they did. Uh, to Probably to get some of the stuff, it, it that's the thing. You know, if you went to Boston and said certain things, right? Mm-hmm. Like from an Oregonian, they'd be like, "Oregon, what are you talking about?" You know, it'd be. <laughs> I mean, they use different slang, breaky yep. uh, for for Australians, mm-hmm. and uh, and and everybody used different slang. I. I I, I think they'll probably stick <laughs> most likely with to it. in Australia. Oh, dude, <laughs> kangaroo breaky, breaky. school. 
You guys love the accent, so you'd fucking adore that game. I guarantee it. Oh. <laughs> Imagine that shit. Um, what you, so, what um, what, so with regards to Life is Strange and the writing, um, writing dialogue that can act, that that can actually be said by a teenager in real life is ridiculously hard because there is a particular slang that is attributed to that demographic that you have to nail in terms of its authenticity and frequency. And there's also the fact that we... Here's the other thing that um, that interested me about Life is Strange and that had me compare it to the likes of Night in the Woods and Oxenfree. Oxenfree mm. and Night in the Woods, um, the dialogue in those games feels more naturalistic. So, so, so here's what I'm doing. I'm saying things like, so, um, yeah, like, right. I'm stuttering. Uh, people don't talk perfectly. So whenever you hear, you know, a video game character speak, their lines are usually polished, you know, all the way through. Sure, sure. And with, and, and say for the occasional, uh, or interruption, they always deliver their lines immaculately. But Oxen Free... There are frequent breaks in the character's dialogue when they're trying to think about what you say next, and you can even interrupt them by uh, essentially pressing the pressing the buttons that correspond to the different responses that you can deliver at any time or not at all. So, the reason I'm pointing this out is because in order to um, so so essentially, you know, cultural issues and also. Uh, uh, themes of you know g- generational gaps between you know millennials and also uh, what came before what came before them. They're co- they're they they are arising, and I think that by capturing you know capturing how they behave and also how how they act how they think, um, among other issues, I think nailing the dialogue is crucial because if you just use a generalized version of their dialect it, you're, then you're, you're selling the narrative short and it's going to prevent your audience from relating with the characters that you wrote and crafted for the context that you similarly honed. It's also uh, people of that age are I guess you could say you know, they're, they're beasts of trends so you have to nail down uh, what sticks and, and what might not carry through time if you know what i'm saying you want your game to age as best as possible and if you take a just a little trend and throw it into your game and it might not work a year down the line even or a couple months down the line it might just wear out so it's like you gotta i think also think of that if you're targeting that demographic for a main character in a story yes it reminds me a bit of um that's that i that's how i thought about um that's how i felt about straight which was recently released, and um, as much as I admire the developers' attention for capturing that uh, mid to late '90s aura of uh, you know first-person shooters and Doom clones, I think that they were trying a bit too hard. And when you add in the roguelike elements, which weren't a part, which weren't even in the likes of Quake, Duke Nukem, and Doom, for that matter, they weren't. The, f- the fact is, what made those games so good in the first place was that they felt so handcrafted and fine-tuned. There was a real 
you know, hierarchy and also ecosystem between the different enemies that you face. You know, cockademons, barons of hell, imps, uh, soldiers, etc., etc. Like there was, there was a real, you know, and you can even see it in your new doom in how they interact with one another. I thought that was lacking in Strafe. I mean, most of the most of the time, you're facing enemies that look like uh, that look like uh, that uh, character from the original near, you know, with the mask. Mm. It's Re- it, um, real yes. quick. Let's yes. let's get. I, I just wanted to hear Lone's t- talk a little bit about Life is Strange before we oh. jump into Strafe. Oh, I apologize. That, never, that, never that's all right. It. I just <laughs> okay because I heard you laughing and I couldn't tell if you had never played it or if you had. Uh, if you had actually enjoyed it, or if you were going to tease Matt and I for liking it, um, but uh, you haven't even you haven't well, even tested it. Better not be it. the latter, or else I'll find you. I, <laughs> I, I was just laughing a little bit at the, at the whole Hella thing. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I've never played Life is Strange to be honest. So, so I have a question. Then hmm. Oxenfree, um, as, as Mitchell brought up, Oxenfree is like game of the year last year for me. Obviously, uh, it sounds like a, a couple other people like it. Are you into those kind of games, Lone? Do you play those? No, really. Oh, I see. Okay, so no, you're just a heathen. I'm, I'm, I'm you're, pretty much just a heathen. heathen, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Just I, don't know, I don't know, man. I'm like, just uncultured. Just... <laughs> you uncultured swine. Um, I don't know. Like those kinds of games. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to. I don't want to say too much because I can't really speak to them. But yeah, well, ne- never right, played like Oxen Free. Well, never played. How about this? You have you have a reason you don't play them. Or you don't get around to them. Is it because... I mean, you like... Here's the thing. Yeah, you like narratives. Hmm. And you know what's going on, exactly. man. Exactly. Yeah, that's... Huh? Uh, Maddie's got my <laughs> puzzlement in his face. That's that's what I... Because I do know he likes narratives. So I was I was wondering what he yeah, thought what the fuck, of that. What's up with that, man? the fuck's going on? Um, <laughs> okay, let, let, let's explain it like this. I, I'm probably what you would consider kind of a video game casual i know oh. that has a, a bit of a stigma to it but no you know show. you know when, when i only have a certain amount of, amount of time to play games i just want to play the the big triple i block blockbuster games really and, and then i'll play a few smaller niche pc games You're here and there playing an indie now isn't, isn't i know i know i two kind of one that's and that's the exact point that i'm saying you know what i mean and like recently i just played soma too which was a mm-hmm. fucking fan like if Soma had come out this year, I'd say it was one of my games of the years. Even though that's not really like I, here and there, I am bucking the trend. But you know, I I can only do so much when I still sure. want to play the bigger games. Yeah. Um. And I just never got around to, to to playing Life is Strange or Auckland Free. And people are probably yelling at me and saying, "Lone, you're a fucking heathen." Honestly, the last well, year, last year you didn't play that much. This year, though, you've played a pretty fucking good amount like i'm not gonna lie dude i'm pretty surprised especially with you know what you do. Uh, like it's you got you've been playing a lot more i can i can go into a lot of details why that's the case but pretty much last year with with youtube videos i was always trying to do v- videos on the weekend now i'm just right. streaming on the weekend i just don't give a shit so i've actually played more games this year so far than i've played yeah, last year at all yeah. yeah i i have the same problem except that instead of triple a titles I'm slightly shifting towards indie titles. Here's why. Indie titles are usually shorter and I can complete them and Good I can point. complete them you I can complete more of them in the same period of time as I would with AAA titles. And the trouble is as someone who has recently graduated from college and is um you know thinking of you know 
uh, breaking yep. into the industry as a professional game developer, I have to start thinking more as a game designer, and it that and this this means that I have to start creating instead of just consuming, and and just also trying to think outside the box, look at other mediums like literature, film, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mm, right. looking for ideas and also inspirations for themes and mechanics that you can incorporate, that one can incorporate in uh, future endeavors. So mm. because of this, I have. I don't have as much time as I used to playing video games. Um, I don't ever think Preach. that I'll. I don't. I don't think. I don't think that I'll be a- ever able to replicate my Fallout Three w- playthrough uh, on uh, on PlayStation Three. Yes. No. I. I. I <laughs> How'd you do it? I'm, why? Because I had a PS3 only at the time. Oh, yeah. My oh, PC was. I didn't have an Xbox as well. Mm, so. Okay. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> but I spent more than the 300 hours in my first playthrough, and I loved it so much that I bought the game again on a PC and 360. Mm. So I don't think I'll get those days again because as we grow <laughs> older, our time becomes more finite. So yeah. you have to think more efficiently and also yeah. spend more selectively because, you know, games are expensive. Yeah. And you have to, it, you it's have interesting to. though because like the fact that you mentioned that games are more expensive. It, when you get a job, you find that you like b- beforehand. You're like, I have all this time but no money for games, and now it's like I have all, I have money but no time for games. It, it completely switches, and it's you know like with any other hobby. W- once you get into your your older years and you have a job, you're working full time. You find less and less time to play games. Like I'd love nothing more than to be able to play as many games as as I can. Because if I had all the time in the world, I would play some of these indie titles again. Like I, I would say confidently that Soma is probably in my top ten of games. Like fucking amazing game. Uh, what's it called? Brothers: A Tale of Two Sons. Fantastic yeah. game. You know Holy what I mean? Like crap. Man, Lone that? and I should never be in the same room at the same time. Uh, those are two of the most piss-poor games. Oh, you're kidding. Fuck. No, in my opinion, by the way, in my opinion, not, not, not in real. Everybody else likes them. So, But it's funny, it's, it's, it's funny he mentions both of those because those happen to be two that everybody else likes. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Like, what game do you like that other people don't? And, you know, that, that uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Soma was, was one of the most... Dis, I just disenchanting titles I've played Are in you so long. Serious? Yeah, and, and what's weird is I I compared it. I believe even in the review to Brothers: A Tale of Two Sides, and I was like, oh I know I'm. Yeah, I know. But those I'm are like two kind of cult. I know favorite games. Well, oh, so will man. Prey. Prey will be, and Maddie doesn't like Prey. There so or doesn't. It's not that he doesn't like it, but you know, you get my drift. Um, uh, we all man. have that one title, right? right that like right. That, that doesn't match up with everybody oh, yeah. else's thoughts on praise because because praise a Bethesda game. So I'll never yeah, fucking right, hear right. the end about how I don't like that one. It's going to be cool to talk. We should do a podcast just about like picking two or three games that are that we just you know status quo really thinks a certain thing of and we don't and why you know why it's possible it doesn't hit you in in right. the way it hit everybody else. Uh, you know, in my, in my, to, when, oh, yeah. sorry, um, in my case uh, that that one game that. People love, but I personally dislike is um, is Dead Rising. I mm. I did not enjoy the first one at all. I thought it was too restrictive. I know what the intention was: repeated playthroughs in order to get better. But 
that simply does not work in a game of this scope and also this intensity. If it if it were, you know, more arcadey like shorter play sessions, that may have worked, but when you're talking about a game that is meant to be, you know, large in scale and that encourages the same kind of resource management and combat that you would find in other survival horror games, that simply does not make sense. And mm-hmm. I was actually one of the few people who who really enjoyed Dead Rising 3. I know that was a divisive title, but I thought that they managed to make the experience more palatable for, for yeah. me. For me. Yeah. I, I know that other people are not going to I don't like Dead Rising 3 as much as past Dead Rising titles. Again, what I'm saying is not gospel. It's just my personal experience with the first and, to a certain degree, the second Dead Rising just wasn't pleasant. So that that's just yeah, me. Fair enough. Yeah, no, that's definitely fair. I mean, I would agree in actual in many ways, actually. So, yeah. Oh, Maddie. Are you going to take a picture of us? No, no, no. I, I my camera was done charging. I didn't want the thing to, to beep. So it's so like, let me oh. just fucking get this thing in smooth as possible. But I can't get the goddamn. Eh, I put it in the wrong way. Fuck. Anyway, um, yeah. As for Life is Strange too, uh, we got a little off track there. Looking forward to that one. How Don't about we always? We bounce <laughs> over to uh, Mitchell. Your little your job, man. Of course. Yeah. Let's Insider. Talk about that. Let's get All right. the inside juicy details. <laughs> well, I'll try to I'll try to share you know the things mm. that are you know appropriate and not try to break any rules. Damn it! So, Damn it! it it's well, alright. I think the first question though that people would want to know is how do you get into it? Like, what was the process? Two words stand out. So mm. a lot of people say that you know. When I hear game developers telling people, you know, how to break into the industry, they say, you know, start making games early. Everyone says that. And I disagree with that because starting games early is not enough. I mean, here's the thing. We, li- we live in a world that's becoming more and more saturated with, you know, people who want to break into entertainment industries. Yeah. And the trouble is, if you st- even if you start early... If you just make the same type of games that follow a particular trend or that they cater to a particular audience because that other game did it so well, it's going to be harder for you to stand out. Unless you do an exceptional job at it, which, let's be honest, you're never going to compare to the likes of you know, Zelda, Call of Duty, etc., etc., in terms of design and production values because you don't have the money for it. So you have to find a way to stand out within your own limits. I began... So this whole writing shtick that uh, I'm honing, um, that I've been honing since 2015, um, it all began while I was um, shopping for hot sauce, ironically enough. And uh, I had this this idea... As as all stories start. As all stories. Every love story. I had this idea of... What if I what if I wrote an article about one of my most niche and strangest obsessions since um, middle school? And that obsession was combining anime with first-person shooters. I wrote an article that that expounded the reasons for having anime first-person shooters made more frequently. And I just wrote it for, you know, just to pass the time. And 
a few days later, the unthinkable happened. It got featured on the front page of Kotaku. Uh. And at that moment, the comments started flooding in. And instead of seeing many people ridicule my idea, um, I saw people who got into a pr- productive debate full of you know praise, constructive criticism. It was civilized, and people began sharing their own thoughts, and you know, they said... Oni or Shogo or all of those other games. Uh, Shogo. Made... Yeah. Oh, yes. That was. Oh, one. dude. Yeah. Mobile Armor Division. Oh, I'm gonna get to that. This You're soon. my personal oh. hero, sir. <laughs> oh, hold on. So the article was a huge success, and that compelled me to write more design posts that I publish regularly on Gamma Sutra, and um, and then at the end of 2015, my writing efforts would be put to the test in the form of an academic paper on Japanese influences in Western first-person shooters. And the games that I used as case studies for that, game, for that paper were Fear and Shogo, both of which were made by Mollith. Yeah. And, and I have to say, I'm still incredibly proud of that paper because it got the intention of Mollith Productions, which led to them invite me over to their office. Wow. Again, a great experience, but it also it also got accepted at two uh, uh, game studies conferences. Uh, I'm going to be giving two speeches later this year about my paper, uh, and that's that's fucking. I awesome. know. Thank that's you. Awesome. I know. I know. It's just when you see an opportunity, you have to leverage it. You have to jump mm. at it. So, um, so how many of you watched the Pete Hines uh, podcast with uh, Greg Miller earlier this year? I watched no, I missed that one. chunk of it. But... Yes, the game's cast. So there was that one bit that really hit me about the Pete Hines. Pete Hines said that if you're just going to go to college to get a degree and you're thinking of breaking into the industry, that's not good enough. You need to be a well-rounded person and have all the skills like, like he did back in college. And also finding opportunities to stand out and have people uh, appreciate your work and see for who you truly are as a creative talent. And when I realized that my writing was having an impact on the gaming community, I some I began contemplating the idea of you know potentially seeking an internship because. In order to gain any job, even an internship, you need to do something in your spare time aside from your academic work. Um, yeah, I actually covered all this uh, game development, um, you know, material in a, in a post that I wrote uh, uh, at the start of 2017. But essentially, what I did is that I networked extensively and presented myself as a writer about and for games. Mm. And when I applied to Bethesda, I um, I showed uh, some of my samples of my work, and uh, and this eventually led me to an interview and a subsequent job offer. Well, not job offer, but internship offer that uh, would last two months until I would fly to Japan in order to complete my senior college project. Wow! And that's, that's how really I got hard, the score. Holy shit! I know. Uh, yeah. that- that's how I got in. I got in because I actually went above my academic uh, requirements and did something in my spare time. And 
I know I had to sacrifice weekends and social time in order to achieve that. But to be honest, if you're not willing to sacrifice your time in order to create something that, you know, shows your talent as a game developer, then mm. someone else will. It's I know it sounds morbid, but it's truth. Um, you really no, have to. It's definitely right because like I've spoken to to tons of HR recruiters or um, recruiters about this, and when they're doing job applications, they'll get a bunch of CVs in, and all they'll do they'll read like the the front you know couple of pages, and they'll sort them in to to different piles. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and then I'll break it down there. Literally, if you if you don't impress straight away, you put it into a no pile, and that's it. Yeah. You, you have to do something extra, something different to be able to stand out from the crowd. And that's easier said than done. And I don't have experience with doing this, you know, specifically in, in the video games uh, development industry. But just with any job, you need to be able to show that, yeah, I use my spare time to do this internship or, or to do this side project. Something else that you've done that adds to your skills and to your repertoire. Otherwise, you, you can't stand out from the crowd. And why would anyone hire you over anyone else if you're just the same as every other person? That's true. You have to be unique and uh, distinct because uh, that's uh, that's ultimately you you have to. It's not about being someone else. You you can't afford to be a follower. You have to be a leader of sorts, someone who leverages their unique traits and quirks and have those interests uh, baked and uh, brought to life into your uh, individual endeavors. So. Um, it's a bit like uh, what I did recently. Um, I recently uh, wrote a visual novel about uh, farming salmon in the Pacific Northwest <laughs> because I grew up eating lots of salmon and other seafood, and I also uh, I also became enamored of uh, food production as a whole. You know how it's impacting our environment, how it's having an effect on our economy, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the kinds of things people are looking for. Things, works that that feel like only you can make. If your if your game or your other or your other work doesn't feel like something that you alone could create, not someone else, then you have to go the extra mile because in or, because when you're creating something that speaks to your interests, passion arises. And when passion arises, productivi productivity goes up. Yes, you also need the work ethic and the willpower to work long hours consistently and also taking care of your body and mind in order to do this over and over again day to day. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that personal attachment to your game or work, it's going to show in the final product. So this is why you always need to have something that speaks yeah. to you in in. In, in some degree, in order to create something that will make heads turn. So Makes that's sense, how... Not to, uh, not to cut you off, but I think of it this way. like uh, When you're going to give a presentation to the class, sometimes the teacher will pick the topic for you, and you'll have to present about something you could really not give a fuck about. And then there are times where you have that, like you said, that extra motivation, that extra productivity when you're talking about something you actually are interested in. Um, a good example I remember when I was in college was I had to do a, a research project on um, anything to do with water because the class is water resources. And I remember I was like, 
dude, I don't care about water. I was like, I got to find something interesting. And I remember, you guys are going to laugh. I fucking did a research project on the uh, Janicki Omniprocessor, which is this device that Bill Gates created, and it turns shit into water. Drinking water, in fact. Mm. That's great. It's actually amazing. And so it was like the biggest difference maker there because I was actually interested in it. I thought it was so fascinating because that's like something you read out of a fairy tale, not to get off track. And then it actually happens. And uh, so, yeah, I was, I was just saying that. That's something that changes people's lives in underdeveloped countries. Like, yep, that, that exactly. kind of shit saves Ex- lives. Exactly. Uh, I, it was I just really interesting. And I just, not to get off tra- track or take it off of you, Mitchell, but I was just thinking, like, you're so right with the whole, if you're really into it, you'll it'll show. It'll make so, a yeah. difference. And then yeah. now I guess the next question is, tell us about your act, like the actual internship or the actual things that you worked on. Obviously, don't break NDA or anything, but... How did it all go? Like, what, what do you what do you do? What is QA testing? Like, I, I think people we were joking about this before the podcast. When they think of QA testing, it's just like, oh, I play games and I'll and I'll you know do stupid stuff here and there to find glitches and I'll report oh, on no, it. Oh no 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 yeah no no no. So, so, no, so t- no. tell us about like what's actually QA testing? What do you do? Of course. So I'll admit that the first couple of weeks have been uh, were daunting. Because I was never in a game studio, let alone a uh, professional environment. So I had to essentially, you know, learn the ropes quickly in, 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 order, to, in order to ensure that I wouldn't let the others down or, you know, fall behind to the point where I'm essentially, you know, dragging the others down. Mm-hmm. So the process of QA goes something like this. Yes, you have to play a game. And you have to break it to look for bugs or unintentional technical issues that may have an impact on the player's experience. And yes, you need to report those. That's that's pretty common knowledge. It's not something that's you know unique to one particular company. Everyone has to do it. What people don't understand about QA testing is that it's an iterative and collaborative process. When you're testing a game, you're testing a game with other people. It's not just, you know, you do this and you do that. You do this particular task and I'll just do this and that. It's not separate because when you take into account the systems that interact with one another, especially in games like immersive sims that are wholly systemic in nature and anything can happen. I mean, that's why you don't see many immersive sims because they're so hard to make. You have to Mm. make sure that, okay, does this react accordingly? Does this function the way it's supposed to that that's pretty standard fare but but when you have this uh implication stretch across various disciplines and people it has this knock-on effect and you have to coordinate you have to coordinate uh you know remotely or across the office to ensure that what you are reporting is not something is something is not something that is meant to happen normally or something that has already been reported because you know the fact that game development is such a fast-paced endeavor and the fact that you know um you can't really afford to slow down the team by submitting reports that don't have that are redundant or deep that are redundant or not detailed enough Mm -hmm. you can't afford to do that so essentially um in any discipline you have to take notes you have to remind you have to remind yourself of 
all the decisions and all the oddities that you detected while you are doing something. So this can be like, you know, you're designing a particular level. So you see this particular quirk in the level structure, how it's going to impact the player, how it's going to impact the NPCs. You write that down and you report it to whoever, to your, to your peers or to your superiors. It happens across all disciplines. But you said QA, so take, so it also happens in a QA context. You have to be, you 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 can't afford to just sit sit in a corner, and just you know, uh, re- and just report all the bugs that you find. It's mm. a, it's important, however, to have a great eye for you know oddities in the code and also in the in the game environment. Mm. You know, mm. when people tell that you're awesome at detecting. Ow. Oh, are you all right? Yeah, that hurt. <laughs> oh, sorry. It, when people tell you that you're awesome at detecting bugs or 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 viewing things that are abnormal, that's a good sign. That's the first step you need to take in order to be a good QA tester. But it's more than just mere detecting. You also once you detect something, you have to ask yourself, has this already been looked at or is this something that just happened? Or something mm. that I discovered, and then you kind of you share your experience. You share your experience with the others. You share your reservations. Uh, again, something that happens in other disciplines, and then you determine whether or not it's worth talking about. Because if it's not worth talking about, then you can't really afford to you know focus on that too heavily because there are other matters to attend to uh, in you know game development, which, again, I said it's fast-paced. But, yeah. you know, when a lot of people say developers are lazy, they, they left this they left this bug intentionally. Oh, they didn't? How come they missed that? It's not that simple. Yeah. It's not as simple as seeing something and then submitting it instantly because... So many either, circumstances. Because, because, indeed, and then you have patches that may fix or break things. Might cause it's, other problems. No. Yes, oh. My goodness! If you think that QA testing, so if you think that QA testing is just about playing the game for yeah. long hours and looking for oddities and just reporting them, that's it. It's it's that 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 doesn't cut it. It's much more it, it's much more iterative and collaborative than that. And it reminds me a bit of what uh, again Pete Hines said in the Games Cast when he said that. Ninety-five percent of people don't know what a beta is. You know, oh, I wish you could add this and that. Only betas are feature complete, so you can mm. only refine what you already have. And he talked about, you know, a good way to put yourself in front of developers is becoming a tester of sorts. You know, submitting reports that are, you know, well detailed and you know contain steps to how to reproduce the bug. That mm. that's what you need to have. As a game developer, not just a tester, you you need to have a knack for detail and note taking. So, you were talking about your college experience earlier, and one thing that I'm exceptionally good at, to a fault, is taking a lot of notes. And yeah. that means staring more, spending more time staring at my notebook than staring at the professor. And you know, I still I have a good relationship with my professors because I talk to them a lot. But uh, it's suffice that you say that whenever I'm in class, even if those slides are going to be published later on the web portal or whatever they use mm-hmm. to publish their material, 
I just write down my thoughts. Especially, you know, uh, in art classes where you have to write down the steps to how to model a particular character or environment. And that's a skill that I leveraged over time and that has enabled me to adapt uh, to uh, my internship at Bethesda because it is a different schedule. It's a nine-to-five shift. It's not, you know, one or two hours of class and then rest. One or two hours of class and then lunch and dinner. It's not like that. You, you work... You have to work. You have to be willing to work long hours, and you know, take a take a, take some rest from time to time because we we humans are like engines. We need to we need to refuel ourselves from time to time mm-hmm. in order to work in the long term. Because if you just focus on the short term by working nonstop, you're gonna burn out and you're gonna be put out of commission for several days. You can't afford to do that. It's fast-paced, yes. And QA testing and all other disciplines have multiple steps and iterations that you have to go through in order to create a polished uh, game. The same thing I did with my visual novel in terms of I created the alpha for the game. Now I have to create the beta. Now I have to create the polished version. Now I have to include all of the finished art. I had to do all of this along with the artist and the sound designer. And... Game development, no matter how you look at it, is collaborative. No hubris, no ego, and uh, no remorse with regards to killing your babies. Can, can you ha- say what, what games you've worked on, quickly? Uh, um, the, at Bethesda? Or any game. Like, well, yeah, say Bethesda first and then any other game. Okay. The only game that I worked on at Bethesda was uh, Skyrim Special Edition. And yeah. uh, I think and that worked to my advantage personally, because I played that game, so I knew it like the back of my hand. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I still did, but, the, but I did a great job at it, and uh, I was, and that really, and that internship alone taught me a lot about the game development, and also, you know, professional work as a whole. Mm. So, I think it's important for people who are thinking of breaking into the industry to, um, have those kinds of experiences along with what I mentioned about uh, doing uh, side the projects in your spare time in order to put yourself out there, to stand out, to network. So uh, network especially because it's one thing to do great work and it's another to be known for doing great work. So you need to have both of these components if you ever hope to have a wide pool of, uh, you know, of uh, developer friends that uh, can help you you know, um, not just, you know, break new industry, but also share knowledge across various disciplines in order to perfect your craft. And that's yeah. in addition to consuming media, you know, whenever I have an idea in mind, um, I usually, as I said with note-taking, I write it down all the time. Um, even while I'm on the move, I make use of my notes app in order to write down ideas for projects or Same. articles that Always. I want to write. Most yes. helpful app ever. Just jotting down ideas as I go along. I, it'll be 4 a.m. I'll, I'll just roll out of bed and be like, I got an idea. <laughs> Write it down. Right 100, 186 notes. No regrets. Yep. There you go. Yeah. So uh, I hope that kind of answers your uh, no, it does. Like yeah. QA question because uh, I, do kn- I understand that I can be a bit uh, nebulous when talking about my experience. But I'm doing this because, you know, um, it's not, not enough just info an- out on it. Because I don't want to become, because I don't want to go too much into, you know, 
details because people want to get a general idea. It's good to come with a general idea and then delving into the details so that the transition from, you know, getting into the groove of things and then sinking your teeth into more complex, uh, complex tasks, uh, that transition can be made all the smoother if you, if you first look at it as this one piece and then you find a way to essentially divvy it up so that you can tackle it one by one. Hmm. Yeah. Same thing with homework, homework assignments, or you know any task. Because if you do everything the night before it's due, that's not going to work. If you look <laughs> at it and you coordinate your work ethic by essentially chipping away at whatever you're doing one by one across several days or weeks, that's going to make the process that's going to make the process that much easier and it'll leave even more room for polish. Polish is important because if you think just getting it, getting whatever needs to be done, done is all that matters, well, you got another thing coming because now you yeah. have to clear out all the mess that you made while you were crafting that uh, particular you know, project you were making. It's a bit like cooking. <laughs> so my question is... Um... Is Bethesda, well, first off, is Bethesda the only place you've done QA for? Yes, Bethesda is the only place I, I have done QA for. Okay, I was going to say, like, what was it like working with them compared to somewhere else? But um, are you able to, to go into any details on, like, any interactions there? Uh, you know, just any first-hand experience? Um, anything along those lines? Just um, a lot of people are also just curious. Like, what's it like in the mysterious Bethesda? You know, because they're, they're so shut closed and for obvious reasons but um i guess a lot of people would probably like an idea of what it's like just working with them you know how they are as people and stuff along those lines i, I suppose all I, so yes so it's so with regards to you know shut in so that again is uh, because you know it's hush hush but mm -hmm. all i can say is great great teams recognize great talent so so what I have to say on that particular topic is that if you do exceptional work, people notice mm -hmm. and they'll be more willing to, you know, let you take on bigger tasks. Again, that applies to any uh, team and discipline. Um, it's uh, I, you know, it's something that would happen at any game studio or any company. If you do exceptional work, if you over deliver, people will notice. And you'll eventually work your way through the ranks. Um, again, I I know that I'm being a bit hazy with the details, but uh, it, it's it's just that it's just that again I want to give people a general idea of what it's like to work at a company at, in a particular position. But okay, so what I can say between game development and you know academic work. Is that game development? In game development, work and social life are more closely intertwined than academia, where you can work one moment and then socialize the other. In when you're working in a professional field, your work can have a big impact on your social endeavors because those people depend on you as well as the others in order to ensure that that one project gets done on time, that they can get the money they need to put food on the table and also. Uh, keep supporting themselves as well as, you know, taking on the kinds of endeavors that will take their, you know, intellect and, and skills to the next level. 
people have to learn constantly. And I hear people say that we don't stop playing because we grow old, uh, or but we grow old because we stop playing. That's mm. true, but that's pretty narrow-minded. A, a better way to phrase it is we don't stop learning. We The moment we stop learning is the moment we start growing old, regardless if you're 20 or 80 years old. Basically, the, if you work well, if you work exceptionally well in the professional field, you're going to be making good friends. And as long as you don't sacrifice, you know, as long as you don't sacrifice your health and your in your image uh, in favor of work, you have to find that fine balance between work and life, life work-life balance. But mm-hmm. because they're more closely intertwined, you have to be, people say hardworking all the time, but it's a, a combination of work ethic, talent, and passion. This uh, trinity of um, this trinity of qualities that you need to have as a creative and professional individual, I think, is what differentiates uh, people, uh, the wannabes, and also rands from those who are willing to stay at uh, a particular company for several years. So. I remember when uh, Bethesda did their uh, little video back at 2015, and people said, I stayed at Bethesda for X number of years, like nine years, or um, yeah. Matt Grandstaff, for instance. He recently celebrated 10 years at Bethesda, mm-hmm. and Pete Hines, uh, I think it was, yeah, 17. Like, like, I think Pete Hines later this year, his career will be old enough to vote. <laughs> so, that's when crazy. you have, so that says, so... When you have people staying at a comp- company for that for that long a period of time, that says something about their commitment to their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting stuff. Oh, uh, thank you. I was going to say really quickly before yeah. we move on. Did you know Matt Grandstaff did writing for New Vegas? No, uh, no, <laughs> I have not. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I did a video the other day where I had to look at who worked on New Vegas, and Matt Grandstaff was on. Was on the obsidian. Well, he was working at Bethesda Softworks, but what he um, did some writing for New Vegas. Yeah, how insane is that? <laughs> that is fucking insane. I actually would never would have thought either. That's crazy. Oh yeah. my god. Anyways, we can we can move. I'm on. sorry if it looks like I'm overreacting. Just like he's the guy I talked to most at Bethesda, and I had no fucking idea. <laughs> I also I also met Chris Avalone um, last year. Amazing, um, he's man. a I, I a, met him. He's cool. I know man. he's a swell fellow, and I uh, we even got a drink together. And I, uh, you know, I remember when he asked me about, "Hey, Mitchell, why did you why did you decide to write about Thief for your narrative project?" And then we started to have this long conversation about immersive sims and how uh, Shogo nearly uh, spelled the doom of Black Owl Studios because <laughs> while they were working on Fallout Two. The studio would uh, periodically, you know, shut uh, periodically, like purposefully call in sick just to play Shogo. And uh, so, yes, uh, with regards to, you know, uh, Shogo Mobile Armor Division, don't mention those words to Chris or else he'll um, (laughs) or else he'll have his uh, feathers ruffled. Oh, no. (laughs) You guys want to talk about some Destiny 2? Oh, Mm -hmm. certainly. Um, I'm feeling a bit Fuck, hard yeah. to do. Mind if I fetch some water? Go for Go it. Go ahead. All right, thanks. Let's... I'll be right back. All right. Cool. So did, did you guys watch the the full stream? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I gotta be real. I was. What was that? Yeah, I was warming up Big ZD from the night before, and um, 
I turned it on. There's like the pre-show. It showed the first batch. It was like it was called the gameplay trailer, but it wasn't gameplay. Um, I watched that. <laughs> I watched the opening gameplay and then the homecoming mission. Yeah, the homecoming. And, and after that, I was just like, I, I, I not like I should. I have an excuse for dismissing it fast. I was like, I got other shit to do, and honestly, this, this, and I know it's a, a sequel. I don't want to piss anyone off. I realize Destiny <laughs> fans get really fucking pissed easily. Like, I didn't say this game looks bad. I was like, this just looks like Destiny 1.5. And people were like, no shit, it's a sequel. I'm like, no, I mean that in the way of they're talking about dungeons, open world, all these different things that would make Destiny 2 very appealing for someone such as myself. But what they showed was a more cinematic, not complaining, more, but I'm saying more cinematic version of Destiny 1. You know, there was rain, there was explosions, fucking enemies flying in on craters or whatever. I mean, I don't know the lore, so it might be more thing, something more specifically called. But I just, at the end of the day, Destiny 2 is revealed. Didn't do it for me. Intrigued to see this open world, intrigued to see the quests, the dungeons, yeah. all that stuff. But yeah, as for Destiny 2, right now, it's like, my deck words were, if Destiny 2's gameplay reveals good, I will buy the Destiny collection. I said it when it was me alone and never that kid. I said I'd buy it out if the, the reel looked good. Not sold on it, so still holding mm. off. So, so that means you, you watched it all character, didn't you? I did. How, yeah. how was it? Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'm probably a little bit higher uh, on Destiny than maybe Maddie is. Not much, but to me, it, it, I think the honest truth is is that they uh, they don't they don't show well. The honest the honest truth, they don't. They, for some reason, I don't know who's behind the scenes on how they cut their stuff and who's on the. But it's almost like I've done this for reviews. Maddie and I've talked about this before. Where sometimes you want to indicate a bug in a review, but it's in a level after the embargo. Like the embargo says, you can't show anything after level five, and it's a level six bug, so you have to talk about it. But your footage doesn't reflect it. Yeah. What happened? What happened through a lot of that was discussion and this is pretty much what maddie's pointing out is discussion around particular elements of the game that in many times was not actually shown on the screen or was not reflected well and so you get this detachment and so i heard a lot of people saying and i don't believe this by the way i heard a lot of people saying oh it's like dlc or it's 1.5 those are those are ways to describe what i think a lot of people felt was a detached moment to where you didn't say this is a sequel and I, that's what happened. Is I didn't hear a lot of people say, "Oh yeah, this is Destiny 2. There was they yeah. didn't show they didn't show those moments to make you think that. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, I mean. that is that's correct. So when I um, I remember watching uh, the original footage for Destiny One, and that looked intriguing. Um, Good point. Initially, I didn't even think back to my I, first reaction to mm-hmm. that game, and that looked that looked intriguing, interesting. When I look at Destiny 2, the first thing that came to mind was that it felt more like um so yes, I think I don't think the um, I don't think the reveal did Destiny 2 much justice, but um it looked more like an iteration like yes, I I know sequels are, you know, in a way iterations on the original formula while adding flourishes that make it uh, their own thing that and that are in ways much that are meant to be much better than the original. Mm-hmm. I didn't get as much of a vibe in terms of, you know, a massive improvements to the formula by watching Destiny 2 as I would with other sequels that uh, made 
huge improvements on the original. Um, I mean, some of the best sequels uh, that I've ever played, uh, Killzone 2, uh, Saints Row 2, um, Metro Last Light. Wow, mm. and, yeah. Great one. And also, yeah. also uh, Darksiders 2, which um, I thought blew the original out of the water, in my opinion. I think when we're talking blow originals out of the water, Watch Dogs 2. Hell yeah, yes, that, that as well. Assassin's so, Creed 2. Those are oh, the games. Oh, Assassin's Creed 2, another swell example. Yes, I didn't get that vibe with by watching Destiny 2. I know that the opening was, you know, more bombastic and flashier than, you know, what we saw with the original. But again, I I think that I think that personally, I need to see more footage of it, and I need to learn more about the additions and refinements in order to convince myself that. It is indeed sequel, like that. It feels like a sequel. Like it is technically a sequel, but it needs to feel like one as well. So, I I believe that some most of the improvements Bungie did to Destiny Two are more internal than external. In that external meaning, you know, graphics and you know the the the, the reactions and the animations that you see from shots fired. And also the moment-to-moment gameplay, but not the subtlety, such as how do weapons feel and have these statistics or abilities or mechanics being changed in a way to make the gameplay gameplay flow more efficient and uh, potent. Hmm. Uh, that I, I, ha- I have to say though, because well, I, I guess a lot of people that like myself, you know, play the original Destiny, stopped after a while, but then you you hear constantly from current Destiny players how things improved beyond that. Mm-hmm. And I guess the main complaint, the main gripe from original Destiny players that fell off was that there was a lack of content. It seems like with this Destiny, they are, are adding more content, even though it very much feels and looks the same, which is exactly what people wanted. People were like, you know, it's a solid shooter at heart, it, it's fun to play, but there was just no meaning for me to keep playing the game after that short little story and just complete, you know, just go through um, and, and collect weapons and, and all that kind of stuff, that kind of grindy aspect of the game. But it, it seems like there is a bit more substance to it now, and that's exactly what people kind of wanted, right? I, I, I don't know. It is, I mean, but I, it is. But here's the problem. You're no, you're right. The problem is though, is they say say that, but what they showed looked like a mod to some people. It looked like the, it, it just looked far too close to the original. And so what happens is it's hard to differentiate. Did I just miss this level and it's actually in one, but they're revisiting mm-hmm. it? Or is this a whole new place? And it, when I was talking to fans, they were like, I'm stoked for what they said, not for what they showed. Almost everybody I've talked to has said the same thing. Okay. Like, yeah. I cannot, I, I'm really stoked to play Destiny 2. And for example, myself, I feel the same way. I'm stoked to play a more open environment. I, there's particular yeah, things I good. don't like about one. Yeah, but what they showed um, and their answers for some of the questions, I think, combined together to create this Voltron of shit. Because I'm going to tell you right now, when fucking Luke Smith, Luke, right, Smith? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that his name? When he's up there talking and they ask him a question and some of the answers he gave later in interviews were terrible. They were they were next they were next level terrible. They were him and Han and oh, um, well, and you're just like, dude, this is your event. Like yeah, it's we're like asking lack you of preparation. 
Yeah, when when they asked him the dedicated server question, and it just it was like, well, I don't want to say that it's not money, but it's really money because it's not money when it's really money, and you're just like, what the fuck is he's lost his mind? He's having a, a stroke right now, and that happened multiple times when he talked, and I have no problem with that guy uh, at all. Um, I have a problem with whatever whatever they prepare, how they prepped. In a way, I told one other YouTuber yesterday, I actually feel like there's a chance that some stuff was not shown that they wanted to show. And um, and that what we got was, once again, we've all talked about this, an, an E3 kind of situation where you're like, we want to show this. Oh, hey, let's cut this. And you have that moment in the E3 where everybody's waiting and they realize that the trailer they wanted to show they can't because they cut it. And you're like, so anyway. <laughs> and that and that's that's what some of, of, Destiny, um, of Destiny 2's reveal felt like. I think like. The, the biggest I- issue... To me, that stuck out with Destiny 2 is, like Mitchell said, you know, you're going to see a lot of the familiarity carry over because it's supposed to be a sequel, so you're supposed to recognize sure. it but add those new elements. But in a way, I, I get what people were saying. I even said, like, it kind of looks like Destiny 1.5 in a way where you see the same exact animations, the same exact UI. And I, these, are, these are nitpicks, fully admitting that. I'm just saying, though, it was right off the bat... I knew it was Destiny, but I'm thinking Destiny 1. Usually when you move on to that next entry, you get that new feeling. It's like a fresh coat of paint, even though it's like, it's uh, it's familiar, but yet brand new. I don't know how to explain it properly. This was like Call of Destiny, in a way. Mm. Like, instead of Call of Duty, it was like a Call of Destiny, uh, uh, you know, announcement, where yeah. you were like, oh, okay, it's the next game in the Call of Duty series, but it's still Call of Duty, and this is the next game in the Destiny series. Yeah, but like, even Call of Duty but has, what like, they little showed. different details along the, around the edges and the corners of the screen, maybe to simulate the mask you're wearing or something along those sure. lines. And that's the thing. is like I was expecting just those subtle changes. It's like when you saw the exact copy and paste, um, I, I wondered if it was telling of the grander picture. It was, it was, that was the immediate impression I got. Where, yeah, it's a, a very minor thing. You know, if the game's fantastic, the open world's good that's what i'm more concerned about i'm just saying that that first feeling i got when i watched it i was like it was a little jarring i'm not gonna lie yeah i I was sitting there eating my lunch i'm like this is destiny one expansion or is this two um it looked fun like the idea of playing through that mission with a friend or something sounds fun but the my biggest thing is exactly what Carrick said what they said the open world dungeons questing npc interaction Excellent. That sounds cool, but it sounds cool. I didn't see yeah, really right. anything that was like, whoa. Yeah. Especially because, yeah. uh, you know, I knew this would be a big topic, and I was like, okay, like, I'm really not feeling this, and I got other shit to do. I'm going to I'm gonna go do something else. You know, like, it, it was that underwhelming for me as someone who was really hoping to be picking up maybe Destiny Collection this, this weekend and playing that through with some friends. Mm. That's just I, I don't know, man. It's, yeah. And and may, maybe it is one of those things where it's it's just kind of difficult naturally, anyways. And f- like fundamentally, it was difficult for them to convey what they were trying to say, even though it could have been done, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at least from the standpoint of what I'm hearing, this this game has much more content than Destiny One. And again, going back to the fact that when w- I think a lot of people that I talked to who played Destiny 1, no one ever complained really about the shooting or the, or the gunplay or how, what yeah, it looked or fe- felt like. So why why change that much if it's not broken? I know it doesn't necessarily feel like, mm-hmm. you know, a, a true sequel, if you will, but Destiny 1 is a pretty recent game. And Do you know what? 
Go ahead. No, no, no it's it's alright. I was quickly finished then. Like it, it, even though it doesn't like look drastically different, I think that might not be a bad thing. I mean, if the game still looks, feels, and plays just as great as the first one, but there's just more, much more content there. There seems to be a, a bigger campaign, which is more cinematic and all that stuff. Then, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. For the inevitable. Destiny 2 is what Destiny 1 should have been headline. <laughs> I can hear it now. No, I, I, I get that, but... And, and that's the thing. Like, Bungie went out on, on their own. At, well, not really on their own. They're with Acti. But the, they've done this new game, branched away with what they've um, done previously with Halo. And it's usually the case. Like, I could, I could name so many first-time games in a franchise that are shit. And then look at what the sequel did. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the sequel always looked vastly different to what the original did. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, oh, this looks like a true sequel, visually, graphics-wise, the hard, the UI, all that kind of stuff. But it's just adding more content, making the game better fundamentally. Yeah, you might get the whole, well, this is what the original game should have been, but that's Mm -hmm. not how development works. So so long as they improve and, and listen to fan feedback, even though it looks and feels like the first game, that's fine because I don't think that's what people were complaining about in the first place. No, I, yeah, that's uh, what I'm saying. In the scheme of things, they're nitpicks. I mean, the most exciting part for me was right in the beginning of the actual gameplay when you see all of them unleash their, their fucking powers and take out swords and stuff. I was like, that looks fun. You know, so that type of stuff I'm stoked for. And if you can pull that off in an open world, and it's like an actual, I'm thinking like seamless open worlds. I'm not talking this stuff we've been seeing lately which is like tons of hubs which i'm not against and, I'm and just saying, a bunch like, of load screens yeah, yeah. reminds like, of stalker yeah exactly mm-hmm. you know i'd love to see a true open world and uh i gotta be honest uh no company i can think of I, like bethesda game studios does my favorite video game dungeons just the way they craft them how they're short little experiences in their own when I hear dungeons in another open world, I'm like, okay, like, let's go. Like, I want another, I want a game that matches what I view as, like, the top of quality when it comes to dungeons. Yeah, so um, it's right, just, you know, I, that, that just rewarding exploration. They do it so yeah. well, and I want another I know, game I, to do it. I remember uh, when I played um, Oblivion all those years ago, so I first discovered Bethesda uh, back in 08 uh, following a um, nasty car crash that I got caught in. And one of the games that my relatives bought for me to console myself was uh, the Game of the Year edition for Oblivion PS3. That's when cool. I played that game. My I all I thought was oh work out. this this was this an, no 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 this was an RPG and I heard a lot of good things about it and I and I said to myself oh I played RPGs in my spare time so I think this is gonna be you know another great time time waster. And boy, was I wrong, because it proved to be much more than that. Yeah. Oblivion completely revamped my perspective on RPGs. From, wow. the way, from the way the open world, from the way the, the open world reacted to my actions, both from an environmental and, you know, NPC perspective, to the way the game content was spread out, like in dungeons and also quests, and then you have the guild, such as, and all, and also like the Dark Brotherhood uh, questline, which is some of the best, um, some some of the best pieces of content I've ever seen in an RPG. I think uh, I think the writers did a stellar job with uh, that particular uh, story arc. That, 
And just the idea of ignoring the main quest, yeah, just to go about your business, that's something that before I played Oblivion, I had never done. And, and you know, the dungeons in Oblivion were tense in a way because of Jeremy Soul's incredible soundtrack, um, which I thought Skyrim was also pretty good, but Oblivion, like, if you're familiar with Soul's work uh, for that game, you'll know just how it's creepy things can get. Mm. I know. Um, <laughs> Like, um, like I can just look at my YouTube, iTunes um, list right now. Um, so if I go down here, Jeremy Soul, yes, right here. Like uh, tracks such as Unmarked Stone, Ancient Sorrow, and then Tension, and then Deep Waters. Like those tracks are the kind of are the kind of tunes that really get me going. They really instill that sense of environmental dread and tension that I seek from, you know, from every survival horror game that I play. Like, even Thief is uh, much is more is gloomier than uh, other games that are meant to be horror in nature. With Oblivion, the environmental storytelling, such as the one that talks about how there was this uh, human that was raised by goblins. In one of the dungeons, I thought that was uh, uh, or goblins or trolls, uh, whatever. Not hundred percent. That that was particularly that was particularly surprising, and and that and that compelled me to explore all of the dungeons uh, across Cyrodiil, even if the fact that they were all designed by one person started to you know started to show with you know repeated treks through the depths of mm-hmm. of Tamriel. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, they, that was they're... that was a that was a great that so I agree with you, Maddie. I thought that the the fa- the way Bethesda designed dungeons was one of the main reasons I became so enamored of their titles and the reasons why I began purchasing all of the RPGs that they released and also their third party offerings. Um, I even purchased um, I even purchased Rogue Warrior because uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't I know. It. We well, apologize. I know. Uh, but you know, this was... is a this is an interesting topic, though, because I don't know why recently I've been going through old like old games and seeing what I would classify as an open world game, and really it's a concept that people haven't necessarily agreed on. And w- when you know Destiny and, and Bungie said, "Oh yeah, we're going to have an open world game," well, what does that mean? Like Maddie said, are there going to be big hubs that you'd have to have a big load screen? before you traveled between them, or is it going to be like a, an Elder Scrolls or Fallout where it's truly open world, but there are some buildings or there are some cities or towns where you'd have to go through a small load screen. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm interested to see where Destiny 2 falls on that side of it because my feeling is, like, could it be like Dying Light? Could it be like Borderlands? I don't, I don't know. I, I would prefer if it was that much more open world style and feel, but like, like um, Breath of the Wild was, for instance. Um, yeah. and, and, and it's funny going back through old Zelda games. I don't know if anyone's played Wind Waker here, but people always say that Wind Waker was an open world game, but it kind of just used the sea as a mask for being open world. And that's where they use, like, you know, they incorporated all the load screens. Um, so yeah, I, I'm interested to see what kind of open world Destiny 2 is going to be. Is it going to be a true one or is it just going to be big and open world in spaces, but still very much hub based? I think it's going to be the latter, to be honest. I don't think it's going to be like, Fallout or Elder Scrolls or Breath of the Wild. Right. I, I think similarly of a Shadow of War. 
especially given that they released their uh, their recent open world trailer. Mm-hmm. Like I remember the original Mordor um, having um, the original Middle Earth having you know two separate maps that are big, but they're still separated by load screens. I want. I wonder what Monolith will do with now that they kind of they mastered the power of eight generation consoles, especially given that uh, Shadow of War is going to be the first game that's going to fully support uh, Project Scorpio. So I, I look forward to seeing what they'll do with the Open World as well as how they'll expand the Nemesis system. Uh, that I think is looking particularly intriguing. But I really want also to see how that's going to have an, an, an impact on the way the world is structured and also populated. Mm. Very nice. How about what is obviously going to be the greatest television show of this generation, The Witcher <laughs> on Netflix? You can hear it now. You can hear it now. Oh, my God. So apparently these are going to be based on the books, which is definitely awesome because I think that'll fit the narrative structure for a television show compared to what I was having a discussion with the, uh, with the viewer on Twitter where I was like, The Witcher 3, The Witcher 2, and maybe for some The Witcher 1 are special games for a reason because it's things they do in a game that I don't think you can replicate on television. But if they're going to follow the path of the books, I'd be curious to see how this goes, but... On the other hand, video game adaptations of any form, shape, and fashion, just they, they don't, as far as I can recall, they don't really work. But as you said, this is, this is not necessarily a video game adaption. It's a book adaption that happens to be a video game, too. Really, it is. It's like making a show off, the, off Metro, for example. They're, based off, they're games based no, off books. Exactly right. So. Yeah, no, and I think... That, but that's, this is the worry, though, because it's based off the books. And let's be honest, most people that have played the Witcher games, even Witcher 3, no one fucking... Know, like, people might know about the books, but no one gives a shit about the books. Like, you you tell me... <laughs> oh, no. You, you, no, but seriously, like, you tell me... Not give a shit. That's probably a, uh, a bad term. But you tell me how many people that have played Witcher 3 have also read the books. And right, if you had... If you, say, I think it's the... Yeah, you say a lot of people, but I'm talking about out of the millions of gamers that have played oh. Witcher 3... How yeah. how many have read the books? Yeah. And that's and that's the worry. If you make it, and I'm not saying that's going to make it bad. I'm just saying it's a, something to point out. If you de- dedicate this Netflix series to the books, and people playing the games are expecting a certain thing, and they go into there and thinking, well, you know, what what is this? This isn't this isn't Witcher. Well, yeah, it is, but it's the book Witcher, which is probably different to the video game. Right. Speaking of, um, it's interesting because uh, a few weeks ago. I read an article uh, featuring uh, the author of the Witcher books, and yeah, I read that too. And, uh, yeah, I read it too. Uh, he he is um, he feels he feels quite ambivalent towards the idea of <laughs> video games as a narrative medium, and I remember him, you know, regretting a bit how he didn't, you know, uh, benefit from the profit that CD Projekt Red. Uh, made with the the Witcher titles. Uh, well, apparently, the deal he did, he he's not getting any royalties, he's not getting right. any bonuses oh. or anything. But he's probably going to be doing that for the Netflix series. I I no. couldn't imagine that he created another deal or signed another deal <laughs> no where he would also not get royalties for something. I, I'm pretty sure in this case he, he's going to be because he seemed a bit salty about that when when right. I read those articles. Think right. of it. Yeah, I mean, think uh, of it. You, you help create it and then you don't get fucking squat from it, like. 
But I, he said apparently that was his fault. If if I'm remembering that article correctly, he just he organized a bad deal. I don't I don't know. Uh, D- Dmitry Glukovsky, the author of the Metro series, however, yeah, he thinks differently. He thinks that video games can be an effective uh, tool for telling Definitely. engrossing stories. And you know, this is he. This is why he. Um, I'm not sure if it was. I think it was him who. It was him who approached um, for a games in terms of having his um, of having uh, Metro 2033 adapted into a video game. And I remember when uh, that game was uh, initially announced for the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and PC initially. And then when it got re-revealed in 2009 for 360 and PC, that was the game that convinced me to essentially upgrade my PC to a slightly uh, slightly beefier setup, uh, same way with Crisis back in 07. And I was quite impressed with what they did in terms of how they managed to weave a narrative uh, through, again, not through the environment, but also through the character himself, Artyom. So, what I like about Metro is that the way the UI is set up, you can ha- you have your journal, you have your watch, your ammo count, everything on the body of your player avatar. And that tells you a lot about the way he is geared and also how he, essentially, how he has to manage his resources, you know, in this uh, post-apocalyptic environment. That's great. That's a, that, that, I think that's a, that's a good way of leveraging the subject matter and material from a book or another medium into a video game because video games have the benefit of being not just audiovisual in nature but also interactive so it doesn't feel vicarious it also feels tangible and and yes tangible i don't want to say visceral because otherwise it'll sound like call of call of duty's world war ii reveal where they say visceral several times so i i shall Spare myself the, the the ridicule. It feels palpable. <laughs> so you have that, and I think Glukovsky has a point. But one has to be careful when translating material from a book to a video game, because video games, the pacing of games, is dictated not just by the developer but also by the player. Whereas in a book, it can easily follow the three act structure, uh, no problem. This might not work in a game if gameplay and, and dynamic uh, elements are par for the course. Uh, I remember Richard Rouse III, who is currently working on Church in the Darkness. He gave a speech along with one of his, um, one of his fellow developers um, on why the three-act structure sucks. So one has to be careful. Uh, but um, I wouldn't go as far as to say as gaming isn't fit for, you know, adaptations. I think uh, the author of The Witcher is a bit wrong on that. I do mm. agree, however, that it's not just a matter of literally translating what's in one medium to another. It's a bit like direct translations from Japanese to English, like word to word. But that doesn't work because then you have to take into account context and, and dialects. So what might yeah. what might make sense in one culture and dialect may not you know, resonate in the other, so you have to factor all of these, um, you know, implications. You know, when you're trying to adapt something to a different medium or culture, and again, this can uh, occur, you know, uh, with regards to the Metro and Witcher, because these are 
These are Eastern European productions that, with a unique history, design philosophy, methodology, and also lore. They're truly special. I, I remember reading an IGN article about how, how games made in the West, uh, our shores, are all about bombast and Michael Bay action. And games that are, you know, from, from the land of the rising sun are so obsessed with anime. Like, these are generalizations, yes. But what they point out about Eastern Europe is that there's this great fascination with books. So, Roadside Picnic for Stalker, uh, The Witcher for The Witcher, and Metro <laughs> for Metro. So, you look at these and you think to yourself, so how do I take elements from this book and apply it to my game? Stalker is a bit strange because it's not a direct adaptation of Roadside Picnic. But it does contain a lot of elements from it. For instance, anomalies littering the landscape, using bolts to detect them, the idea of a zone. Those are all in Stalker, which originated from Roadside Picnic. And it's funny for me to mention Stalker because I also wrote about it. I wrote a review for the um, computer role-playing game project by Philippe Pepe. Um, I wrote a, a review of sorts for it. And I expounded those uh, details because I think it's important to take into account the idea of adaptations along with creating narrative for your game. Now, that's another ballpark. It's like, because if you messed it, if you mucked it up, if you were working on a Batman adaptation, suddenly you would end up with him using guns, which wouldn't make sense given that Batman is not the kind of person who kills. So you have to be careful with how you take something from one medium to the other. So I do agree that, you know, probably the issue of not watching the Witcher Netflix series because it's based on the book rather than the games. And you know how much material can translate from one medium to the other. Again, I know I've been um, I know I've been uh, driveling a bit on that particular topic, but those are those are easy mistakes to make as a talent. And it can be a bit of a missed opportunity for doing justice to the kind of material that you are especially fond about. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, damn, dude. Yeah, you just fucking hit me with the information overload. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I gotta process all of it. Just take a fucking moment, breathe. What do you think, though, Carrick? You've been a bit quiet. Uh, what do I think about what? Which are being a Netflix series? Um, I, I mean, like they just announced it, so I don't really have much to add to that mm. until we see. You know, I we saw Sword of Truth too, which was Terry Goodkind's incredibly, incredibly popular series fail pretty spectacularly after. I think it got its second season. So uh, I, I think a lot of times people are just trying to jump onto the Game of Thrones uh, bandwagon kind of thing and. Comparison. Yeah, and for me, I, I'm much more interested in if it's good than if it copies or mimics something. I mean, Game of Thrones is supposed to have, what, four? Didn't they announce they had four spinoffs planned for Game of Thrones alone? Yeah, so, yeah. no, and milk, no. Milking so, it dry. Milking it dry. Like, literally milking it dry, that. replacing it with an artificial <laughs> tit, and then milking the artificial <laughs> tit dry. So, uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, not much. It's it's so far out. They and this and the the authors. I mean, he is pretty much a, a, an incredibly massive doucheberg. So it's like we have no clue if he's 
going to stick around? Like, is he going to cause more issues? I mean, he is. He is. I mean, he is. He's a jackass. No, I'm, I'm not saying <laughs> he will. Fucking he will. Ad- I love it. Well, he will admit is he jack. He, he's a jackass. He's admitted it before. I mean, he admitted it during the uh, that discussion with the other author. And the other author, author was like, yeah, he's sort of an egotistical jackass. He is. He has a place and a right to be. But I'm a little nervous that somebody like that will be like Clive Cussler, who's had enormous success fictionally and incredibly terrible. Even Sahara with uh, Matthew McConaughey mm-hmm. did terrible, technically. And it's because Clive himself is almost impossible to work with. And so it, it'll just be interesting to see. But there's so many pots in the you know, in the fire right now. It's yeah. Like, like, we, uh, we don't really know. Like you know. Charlie, uh, Charlie Chaplin, you know, uh, being a silent film icon and then having a bit of trouble with talkies, especially when the jazz singer came around the corner and suddenly it signaled the end of the silent comedy. So yes, those, those kinds of transitions from either, you know, one endeavor to the other, one medium to the other. Right. Uh, how much of an involvement is is the writer going to be having in this series? Though I mean, I, I can't imagine he's going to be having a big part. It's just going to be like, yeah, send me my royalty check every month, and and, and we'll be good to go. Like, and and not that's not a knock on him. Like, I, I think I'd do the same. Yeah, I'd be like, um, I don't know. Like, like, I mean, like, and go do something else. The, like. the, the problem is, is if he if he wants a bigger deal, then there is a chance they'll require more. It it, it all depends, and and sometimes they're just a resource, right? Like they're just yeah. there to answer questions about the about the world so that is that is possible um but again that's sort of so many things are up in the air i don't really have a, an opinion because it's it's like they announce something some point at some time it's just like witcher uh not witcher 3 sorry or not witcher 4 but uh what's what's the game they're working on cyber cyber world yeah cyberpunk yep cyberpunk. Um, I, i'm not at all interested in it because it's so far out and they've they've, they've shown nothing so it's like right now I'm just sort of sitting back going could be yeah. good but we've seen great studios release terrible second games. It could be great cuz we've seen sequels be awesome uh from companies but like you said earlier some sequels are awesome from com- some companies some se- sequels have sucked. It, it, good studio doesn't mean they're going to magically make a great game. And uh when it's so far out it's hard to even talk about it cuz you're like I I I think with the cyber sorry I forgot it again. Cyber World, Cyber Cyberpunk 2077. Cyberpunk 2077, thank you. So Cyberpunk 2077, uh, the reason why I don't even follow it is because I think the only thing I've seen on it is its font. I mean, I literally think that's all I know of the game is yeah. and, and what they've said they want to do. But a little bit like Destiny 2, they need to show it, right? Like we need to see it. I need to see what Witcher is going to look like on a on a TV show like if it's not the Witcher, is it going to be him? If it is him, then I would, if it is Geralt, then, or wh- however you pronounce it, then I would assume um, the writer would be involved. If it's not, then, then I don't know. Like, yeah. Have they said that? Have they even gone so far as to say what it's about? Like, is it no. about another Witcher? No, it's just about. Um, it's going to be about the book series, and I, I think the VP that of would Netflix. Be, I, I'd, right? I'd be uh, very, I'd be incredibly be surprised if he didn't have at least a supervising role. Me too. At least. I don't um, know, but he, he's retired, though, the, oh, the well, writer, is, as far as I understand I, it. I, right. And, it's... You know, like, he, he might be consulted every now and again, but I remember an interview where he was talking about the Witcher games, and he's like, I'm a retired businessman or something. 
So I, I can't imagine, like, he might be consulted here and there about the fine, subtle details of, of his novel, but very much so. It's a Netflix series. I mean, they're going to they're gonna take artistic liberties with this. And, and I think rightly right. so. They're the ones that are best fit to make a series, and he's the one that's best fit to make a book or to write books. Right, right. Yes, consultant. That's the right word for it. So yeah. I, stand, I stand corrected. Yeah. So we got two topics left. We'll wrap up two of them into one. Um because we got to talk about Xbox and we got some Ubisoft stuff. So Phantom Dust is being re-released for free on PC and Xbox One. And on top of that, we got a scale-bound trademark. So <sighs> let's take a crack at the scale-bound trademark, because I think that one alone, you get some pent-up oh, rage. Huh? Um, so obviously registering a trademark doesn't mean anything. They're just protecting it. Um, it doesn't show an indication that in the future they want to work on another scale-bound, ga- scale-bound game. Probably, yeah. Doesn't mean it's in development now. No, mm-hmm. probably not. And I think there was a Windows Central article about this where uh, someone, he, he had some sources, the, the article author, and he said, no, it's not in development. Um, and, and this Shocker. is something. Was just canceled. I know. <laughs> this is something that we've dealt with in Fallout all the time, Maddie. Like, you know, yeah. just because the Fallout movie trademark has been renewed. It doesn't mean shit. It, they just want to protect their trademark. That's the intention of it. So just in case in the future they want to use it, they have it protected. Because if, if they don't use a trademark or they don't keep it registered, then they lose it. And, and that's the only reason like why they're renewing within it. Two, or Psycho Break 2, where it's like, mm. oh. You know, like those type of trademarks, I think, are giveaways. Um, but I, yeah. I, I see what you're getting at. Yeah, I, I think... It's silly for people to look into a trademark when the game was just canceled. It's not. We talked about this cancellation extensively. We're like, this game, they clearly thought no matter what amount of money they put in, they were not getting it back despite all they put in where they thought it was a better idea just to can it. And they're not going to can it and then go, fuck. Let's let's, let's start development again. Yeah, let's well, throw in another two hundred million dollars into yeah, the game. Like, like, no, they're yeah. not going to do that. It's that'd be silly. It's it's like that's a big decision. They don't just do it nilly willy and then reverse it. Yeah, to but be... I, I, again, I, I very much see a couple, like three, four years, however long down the line it is, they would say, well, you know what? We have this developer that's free. Um, we trust their work. They're a Microsoft studio. Let's let's give them the the game again, and that's important because we've kept up the registration of the trademark. That that's what it is. I'll I'll admit, um, compared to uh, Sony and uh, Nintendo, Microsoft has has been a, a wee bit shaky with its exclusives. I mean, let's let's re- let's turn the clock back to 2014 when Scalebound got announced at E3, Crackdown also got announced at E3, and we think we. I mean, we did see we did see exclusives like Halo Five and you know Gears of War Four being released, but Crackdown. It's. I I hope it's gonna be released this year because uh, I have. Um. But and then and then you have us and then you have a, Scalebound getting canceled, all of a sudden after nearly three years of it being announced, and this has me a bit worried about the lineup. Because everybody knows that the hardware doesn't mean much if the software or the incentive to own a particular piece of equipment isn't there. So I'm telling you right now, they have they have secrets for their E3 presser. Like oh, they're just right. remaining, yep. they're remaining hush hush. 
All right. For the, and, and then time for the E3 press, that's going to be bam, game, bam, game, well, that, bam, right. game. That's what's so wrong. strange about the Phantom Dust re-releases, because they're also doing a remake, like or a reboot, something like that, like a brand new Phantom Dust. But they're also re-releasing the old one, and they just did it for free one week. They're like, yeah, it's coming out tomorrow, guys. Enjoy. And, like, people freaked out. I've never played Phantom Dust. Uh, one of the guys who I followed, he used to work at Rev3 Games. That's a throwback. Uh, Nick Robinson, oh. I think it was. And then, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I still follow him, and he was like, Phantom Dust is literally my favorite game ever made. I remember watching, like, his a video I think they made on Rev3 of, like, their favorite games of all time, and he talked about Phantom Dust. And I saw it, and I was like, that's different. I, I want to look into that, and I never got around to it. So this re-release is something I'm definitely going to take a crack at at some point in time. I think it's only 9 gigabytes on the Xbox One, so you can just download it for those who are curious. Um, but it just shows how <laughs> Microsoft's really trying to get back in the fight somehow. They're like, here, take a fucking free awesome game. Apparently it's awesome, at least. Right. Uh, you, speaking of... You, you mentioned oh. Rev3 Games. I, I fucking missed that channel. I, know. I, I thought like, Rev3 Games was amazing. Right. Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of obscure Xbox re-releases, um, I also recently took a crack at uh, Voodoo Vince, which um, which had its remaster released um, last month. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, that that game was released back in '03, and uh, it didn't really make much of a splash back then. It received decent at best reviews, and when I got a chance to play it, I thought it was pretty good. So it's interesting to see Microsoft look at games that initially didn't get a lot of attention when they were initially released, and now they are coming back all spruced up. It also reminds me of um, another project that I've been following for several years, but similarly to Cyberpunk, um, I haven't been paying much attention to because of dearth of information, um, Time Splitters Rewind. Um, oh, Time Splitters! Holy shit! Yeah, I I know oh, and that that man. was the so on my Patreon that 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 profile pick is actually from one of the multiplayer characters in Future Perfect, the Shoal. Mm. So that's how I love that series. It got me into first person shooters in the first place. Look, it's a mod project. It's it's a fan made, and I can understand why they're taking their sweet time with it. It's not like they are full-time or have the budget for it then let's be honest crytek hasn't exactly been a good steward of the time splitters uh license mm. and and to in my opinion the sooner they sell it off to someone else the better uh, i heard that devolver is interested in nabbing the license yes Devolver's um, great man yeah i know i know i hope i hope it happens but i really hope that such you know you know I like this trend of giving, of giving you know obscure games a new lease of on life, because it might sync with a uh, crowd again. I think I think Rocket League is what started that. They were like that was so random and different, and it just like you said, it, it, they just kind of tossed it out there as a PS Plus game, and it became a big hit. And it's like you don't you don't predict that stuff. So I wonder if that's why you'll see. For example, Phantom Dust pop out, and they'll be like, "Hey, try it, and maybe it'll catch on." Because it is multiplayer, so you know that, oh. there's always a good chance of that. Oh yes, I remember PS Plus when it was uh, it announced back at, I think it was E3 2010. Yes, oh. 2010 was a was a huge year at E3. I think next to 2015, it's one of the best E3s I've ever watched. Mm. I think it was a real. I think at that point, it was the real 
turning point, the mid-generation turning point for the seventh generation. Um, I wonder if this E3 or if that doesn't work out, the other one is going to be uh, just as pivotal because I, uh, because I gotta, I, sorry can I sorry. can I add yeah. something I I got to get going here this has gone a, a little longer uh, no hang on um I I just want to I want to add something roll the thing back uh, to back we were talking about um, phantom dust a while ago mm-hmm. and um I just wanted to add that uh, the idea of of most likely that title being rolled out as a remaster slash also free is uh, we're also hearing a lot of developers saying that, um, unfortunately, a majority of people are vocal but don't back it up with their money, don't back it up with their time, don't back it up. For example, people say, oh, this game's only eight hours long, but less than 20% of people finish any game. So mm-hmm. what happens is a person can bitch and then pretend they're not going to buy a title when in reality there's a very good chance they're complete liars. Mm-hmm. And so what? We, and, and that's true. I mean, I'm not being rude. We, I mean, people do it. Like uh, They'll even admit it on channels. So uh, Microsoft and Sony, I would assume, doing this as well, Nintendo as well, reaching out to gamers with little snippets and seeing what truly catches on. And we talked about this before with what stats are held by PSN and by Xbox and what they can see and, and what engagement they see. I think that matters. I, I, and I think that they'll look at like a Phantom Dust and go, okay, these people said they wanted to play the old game. Your, your, your person you follow at Rev3... Um, and he did, right? They did. They did play it, so that there is something to be said there. And mm. I think we're going to start seeing that more as people hedge their bets, because everybody I talk to, small or large in development, and in publishers, they all say the same thing: that it's not that they want to make worse games. It's not that they want to grift everybody. It's literally that they want the data. We've talked about this right when I first jumped on the channel. That sometimes developers can't tell what's real and what's not, and so the more information they can get. And the more they can sort of delve into where people really do want to spend their money and do feel comfortable um, purchasing, I think we're going to see a lot of them taking these odd chances. And it won't just be Microsoft, Sony, and and Nintendo. We'll see it from the Activisions, the EAs, those kind of people. And remember, those companies, they're all friends, but guess what? You can bet your ass, like uh, Hmm. Microsoft's Xbox Pass has made EA go, hmm, Mm-hmm. You know st- that it, it, they're all friends. Yeah. They're all shaking hands and they're patting each other on the back. But behind the scenes, they're like, mm, "Okay, so they're offering this for this much. We're offering this for this much. What do we do?" And that's good. That's that's the type of uh, competition we want in games. Absolutely. No, exactly. Yeah, I gotta get going. Going too, by the way. So we probably should wrap it up. Yeah, may as well then. Yeah, we're about to hit the two-hour mark anyway. Well. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us, for offering yeah, your definitely. thoughts and sharing your story about uh, doing some QA at Bethesda. It's honestly really insightful stuff, and it's freaking awesome to hear about it. You know, I don't think that type of stuff gets a lot of light shed on it. So really, man, thank you, especially for contacting me and letting me know. Because, like, of you know, course. Th- that's the awesome part is that you reached out and were like, hey, I do this, man. I was like, dude, come the fuck on. Let's go. Yeah, of that's course. very cool. So, very- if you're, if you're, so I'm on Twitter all the time. So if you're interested in following me, my Twitter handle is Watchfin64. So it's uh, spelled W. Got it all a- on screen, bro. Got yep. you covered. Oh, okay. Yeah, you on screen. <laughs> all right. Anyway. All right. Good. 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 Sorry. No, I just wanted you're to fine, make sure man. that. All right. All right. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank right. you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening this far. If you did, um, we don't have a hashtag this week. Oh shit. Hashtag, hashtag, hashtag Shogo rocks, actually. Shogo, <laughs> Shogo does not get enough love. 
show it doesn't, does not it honestly get enough love. doesn't. That is a classic. So, so it, it, I'm, it glad that, I'm glad Mitch right. so likes it. it. Jogo rocks. All right. We I want to see how many people got to this point and, and, and tweet that. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. All right. Thank <laughs> you guys so much for out. listening. Be sure to follow Mitchell, and we'll catch you guys in next week's episode. Peace out. Peace right. out. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.